Gotham, a crazy podcast about DC, with your host E-Rock and PD, when we speak up, get your geeks up, cause you know you about to get geeked up, so sit back, relax, and get comfy, lose your mind like Solomon Grundy, and listen to a show that won't be forgotten, coming straight out of Gotham. Gotham City, welcome to another episode of Straight Out of Gotham, episode 20. We are one episode away from being able to drink. We are a proud member of the Batman Podcast Network, hosted by Batman on Film. I am your co-host from the home state of Aries Spears. I'm Peter Embera. And today we are recording on November 18th, 2020. And, it'll, and as always, we have a great show for you today. But before we get into the good stuff, I would like to remind all of our faithful listeners that if you take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, and we read your review on air, we will send you a special prize pack. Now, let me introduce you to my co-host, the winner of the 2012 Rosslyn Heights Turkey Trot in record time, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Eric Holzman. What's up? Turkey Trot. how, How fast were you in that turkey trot? Uh, I was so fast. I broke the clock. Like they, it was flash speed. Like that's how fast I was. It was unbelievable. And I still, to this day, get questions about that. Was I cheating? Did I give PEDs, uh, Cano, like Robinson? Yeah. Cano? Yeah. Did I give the turkey some, you know, kind of, um, yeah, PEDs <laughs> or some speed or something? It was crazy, but, uh, it was a good memory. Again, another good memory. Pete, you keep giving away all of my feats, accomplishments, uh, so anyone who listens to this show probably has gotten to know me pretty well. Well, I don't want to write a book and this seems a lot easier, but <laughs> we do have a special guest today who knows a lot about writing. Uh, the writer of Batman and the Outsiders, volume three, uh, a big part of Titans seasons one and two. And now the writer of the Power Rangers reboot, Mr. Brian Edward Hill. Brian, how are you, buddy? I'm good. What's going on? We are just, uh, you know, we're getting, you know, getting ready for all things nerdy right now. We got a lot of genres to cover and we got some cool topics to discuss with you. And uh, we just want to thank you for being on the show with us. Oh, happy to be here. Happy to be here. So uh, right off the bat, I mean, Batman and the Outsiders, you're coming off of, what was it? Six issues of Detective Comics, I think it was? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I was, I was working on season one of Titans. Um, I was in Canada shooting, actually. Okay. Uh, So you're doing two for one. Yeah, like, you know, I was on set, um, mm-hmm. and if for anyone who's never been on set, it's a lot of waiting, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's cool for the first two hours, and after that, you're just sitting around watching beautiful people do nothing. Okay, and they, okay. And then they do a little bit of something for, like, 30 seconds, and then they do nothing again for two hours, right? So that's kind of what being on – if you're not directing or acting or working, like, actively on the shooting, you're just sitting. And uh, I remember getting a call from Chris Conroy. Um, who I didn't know very much at the time, but became a really good friend of mine throughout this whole process. And he asked me if I was interested in doing, um, you know, like a, an arc run of, of Detective Comics. And mm-hmm. I was really surprised that I was getting the call because I always felt like, you know, you, you get Detective Comics after you're, you know, Peter Tomasi or, you know, James Tinian or, or Scott or someone like that. And, and I work in comics and have been doing comics for, you know, I guess it's going on a decade now. But like, you know, I always felt like I was kind of getting in where I could fit in and and that kind of deal. Like I wasn't really like a cornerstone in the culture. So I was really surprised to get the call. But 
um, I was excited to to do it, you know. And and uh, at the time, we didn't know it was going to turn into outsiders. I didn't know it was going to turn into an outsiders book. Um, I just uh, was like, okay, cool. I can do an arc. That's great. I get a little trade paperback, you know, mm-hmm. a little trade of Detective Comics, you know, under my belt. That seems like a nice thing, part of the Batman legacy and all that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it just, you know, like you you did a solid eighteen issues on Batman and the Outsiders. You had seventeen issues in an annual. And what I found really interesting is just you had so many issues to tell this this grand epic Raza Ghoul story. You know, yeah. like you had a small little part of detective. Like you got that one traded detective, but you've got a whole volume to yourself about Batman and the Outsiders. Katana, Black Lightning, Signal was in there, uh Lady Shiva, at Raz, like you introduced a lot of new characters. Like what was all, what was that like? I mean, so, the, uh, Sophia Ramos was a huge part of that book. Like how, mm. what inspired you to create this? Just, I think, and I love the run. I think it's really great. Cause just the dynamics between the characters was so fresh and you bring in back karma from, um, from your detective run. So it's kind of really wrapped up really nicely as well. Yeah. You know, it's, it was very organic. You know, when, when Chris reached out, he didn't have a lot of marching orders. He was, you know, he just said like, Hey, you know, we want to kind of bring black lightning into this. And so it's going to kind of feel a little outsiders Y, mm-hmm. but don't feel pressure to have to build a whole series out of it. Just kind of do what you want to do. And I uh, really wanted to work with Cassandra Kane. That was the thing that really brought me in. I mean, I love working on, on Batman stuff, um, mm-hmm. but there's a ton of Batman stuff. Right. So, uh, I didn't feel like Batman needed my voice necessarily, but not that Cassandra did either, but I just always had a real affinity for the character and I had a perspective on her and I uh, felt like I could do a decent job. And and because I knew I wanted to center her in at least a, a moment. And then that's kind of how stories come to me. Like usually I'll get a scene or a sequence first and then I can build from that. You know, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think about the whole plot first. I don't come up with the ending first. I'm just like, well, what would I want to see? And I, and I knew I wanted a nice, like, knockdown, drag out fight with Cassandra in the street. Yeah. You know, I just knew I wanted that. And then once I knew I wanted that, I'm like, well, I need a villain who can fight. And then I'm like, well, Cassandra has uh, almost a preternatural ability to fight. She's very difficult to handle in close quarters combat. So I'm like, well, I need a villain who's going to be able to kind of match her in some way. And that's when I dreamed up the idea of uh, like, a, a, you know, a telepath or, you know, someone that has like some kind of ability. I didn't know if it was going to be like a metahuman or if he was going to have gear that did it. Eventually, I kind of landed on gear. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it started to take shape. I'm like, OK, this is a cool villain. And then you have to, you know, once you come up with like the functional aspects of a villain, then you got to figure out, well, well where did this guy come from? Yeah. You know? Why does he have all this stuff? And that's what Bruce tied into it. So, you know, that's kind of how all of that sort of evolved, really. It was from the initial interest in, in yes, doing Batman, but specifically working with Cassandra and then and then wanting to do a really cool Cassandra Kane fight scene. And and then that kind of the, the story built itself, kind of germinated around the seed of that idea. Mm-hmm. And Cassandra and um Signal, they had like this special relationship throughout the throughout the story, throughout the arc. You know, she was it, it was it kind of paralleled a little bit like Katana and Black Lightning. Like there was that special bond, and it was like you know various times you would write in like, "Are you guys are you guys together?" And they kind of like w- wouldn't really acknowledge it, but it's like you know, you could feel that bond. And I, I thought that was really interesting myself. Yeah, you know, I when I when I think about characters and potential relationships and and that sort of thing. Um, 
I rarely think about like, well, I know these characters are going to get together. You know, that's mm-hmm. not really how I think about it, right? I just think to when I was their age and I was just kind of out and about in my New York City days, you know, I guess as Morris you would say my early burglary days, right? When when I was there, you know, like you're young, you're feeling confident and indestructible, you know, like you're around other young people that feel confident and indestructible. And there's always like a spark in the air at that yeah. age, I feel, right? Like it's just, you know, that that's like the age where if you go on a car road trip with someone and she's sitting next to you in the back seat while your boy is driving, by the time you get there, you guys are in a relationship. You know, okay. it's just, it's like that kind of vibe. So I just wanted to catch the crackle of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like you've got these people who know each other more well, you know, they know each other in ways other people simply can't, right? Like, yeah. And that creates a certain bond. I mean, it's similar to sort of what went on with um, Jefferson and Katana, even though I put a little bit of a finer point on that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I like my comic book stories to be wonderfully messy the same way life is, right? I mean, and how many of us have had friends that you're, like, attracted to? Yeah, mixed but, signals all the time. But you're not, you know, like, neither one of you, you're not trying to screw the friendship up. You know, you're, like... You know, it's it's nothing you have to necessarily pursue, but it's still something you can kind of enjoy without really taking it a step further. And, and, and too many times, I think, in stories, we have these kind of pat, cut and dry relationships, and that's just not how life works. So uh, I just felt like, well, I'm just going to kind of let it happen organically, you know, just let it exist organically. And whether they step to it or not, eh, not so important, you know. That's interesting. Um, one of the things that I really dug, I think it might have been, it, it was either issue one or two. It's when we first get introduced to Caliber. I got like these really strong, almost cable, maybe, you know, cable vibes. You know, he just like pops out. And he's like, I'm from the future. And he kind of, he's got that like, um, uh, Dexter Soy did that like really cool. He, he looks like a nineties character. And I was, just, I was wondering if there was any kind of inspiration for the, just the character, the appearance of Kate of a uh, Caliber. Well, I mean, you know, Caliber was like my, song to the 90s in a lot of ways oh great i'm so glad you said that like it's i mean you know and and it was it's sort of deliberately throwback and he's like kind of deliberately a little corny you know but like it's it just spoke to the kind of books that i got really hype about when i was a kid and like characters that have like two masks on and they always have cargo pants and like his his guns like seven feet tall yeah like the guns (laughs) got other guns you know like it's it's it was just that kind of vibe. So I wanted him to first hit the scene like that dude, right? Yeah, no, like, that's it. And, and, and then started. I wanted to, to peel him back a little bit and make him a little more interesting and do some things with him. Um, and then the the actual construction of his introduction into the book is, is you know, a throw throwback to uh, James Cameron, you know, the, to the Terminator. Kyle Reese, yeah, okay. come with me if you want to live kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and like and I Sophia's said earlier, thing really in that part yeah. of the story, she's basically Sarah Connor in mm-hmm. the Terminator, right? I mean, it's very first Terminator. Yeah. And, and like Ishmael comes out and he just like trashes the car, you right. know, and it, you're just, right. I'm, you know, it's like, whoa. And it's like, so what I've really found interesting from your two, from, you know, from your running detective and as well as outsiders, you created a lot of new villains. What is like the process of creating these new characters, like Caliber, Ismail, um, you know, and, and Karma? Like you, you kind of had like free reign here. Like, what, what is that like? Kind of deviating from like the classic rogues gallery uh, that Batman usually has, the iconic gallery. 
Well, you know, I talked to Chris in DC about it when we started the process. And my thinking was, if I use a, a legacy villain, then the reader knows mm-hmm. what can and can't happen. Right? Like, I'm, it's, I've, I've locked it in. You know, like, it's, it's very predictable. You know, you know that, like, Harvey's not going to die. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you know... Um, Cobblepot isn't going to do this, right? Nigma won't do that, you know, like whatever it is. So I wanted to create some villains uh, that I could do whatever I wanted to do with without having to worry about stepping on this and stepping on that, you know, and, and having a little bit of freedom, uh, the freedom of characterization. Uh, and I felt like it's always good to be additive, uh, you know, within comics. Like it's, uh, I'm a firm believer that when you get onto something, if it's not a character you own, it's like a corporate character. I like to add stuff mm-hmm. so that the the next you know lady or fellow who comes uh, after me has more things they can play with, you know, more things they can do. Right? Like just because in Outsiders it appears Karma is dead, doesn't have to be. Right? Yeah. Like it's comics. Right? Anything. I mean, Jason Todd came back. <laughs> Jason Todd came back. Right? You know. Yeah. You know, same thing with Caliber and 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 all of that stuff, and like you know, uh, Dementieva, you know, the the arms, the kind of the Markovian alien, you know, black arms dealer kind of world. Like, I just like to expand things so that there's yeah. more for everyone to play with. Mm-hmm. Do you find that harder? Do you find it harder to expand and develop a new character as opposed to one that has a legacy that you might feel weird going off script for? You know, it depends, I think, you know, I mean, for, for me, uh, I wanted villains that had specific functions because I needed them to do it in the story. Right. So it was easier for me to create villains because they could be specifically what I needed them to be rather than have, rather than having like, you know, use a legacy villain that isn't quite what I need them to be, you know? And so do I have to shade their characterization in one way? Do I have to change them a little bit this way? Do I have to give them you know, like a prowess that they don't really have, like in being able to create the sort of perfect snowflake that you need for your story, it's easier to me. Um, but that's because I create stuff all the time. You know, I mean, in my, my, my main gig, you know, is screenwriting and TV writing and I'm constantly right. creating stuff. Um, so, you know, it's just sort of like a natural, natural thing. Okay. How would you basically describe? I mentioned earlier that this is kind of like a Raza Gul epic, but it, at the heart of the story, it's really about Sophia Ramos and you know her her in the beginning where she's kind of like you said the Saracana. So I, I pulled an Arnold there. Saracana. That, that just happened naturally. You know, so when, you're, when you're creating the, <laughs> the these kinds of things, you know, so I want to make sure that I do it in a good way, you know. Yeah. So like in the beginning, she's like that frightened little girl. And then like Roz gets her hands on her and she, he manipulates her. And eventually she kind of becomes w- one of the outsiders to an extent. And then by the end of the story, she's just deciding that she wants to almost live like a normal life and doesn't, she doesn't want any hands up. Like, how would you describe her journey in your mm. words? Well, um, you know, I think a lot of my stories are about finding purpose in your life. Right. Like finding your path. And and more specifically, a lot of my stories are about what do you do after tragedy? What do you mm-hmm. do after, you know, like the darkest day you've had in your life? What do you do tomorrow? Right. Because um, I think those kinds of things, uh, um, those ideas, those thematics, they can speak to us. They, you know, it might not be resonant for everyone at the same time, but it's resonant for everyone some of the time. And 
uh, I was helped out a lot, you know, when I was growing up um, by heroic stories, mythological stories, trying to make sense of things in my world. So that's generally what I tend to tell stories about. Uh, so with Sophia, you know, it was really about this this person that uh, destiny crashes into them and and opens up a horrible hole in her life, and she has to figure out what she's going to use to fill it, and 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 what she's going to become, and what her future is going to be, and how much agency she has over it. Right. Uh, so that was the, the the general sphere that I wanted to to play in. And when it comes to any story. If you can boil it down to the fate of of a character or a few characters, there's an emotional weight that comes from that. You know, you care more about a person than you do about a, what if what if a bomb goes off. You know, because the bomb never goes off, right? You know, like so. If all you're doing is stop the thing from happening, and you don't really have any emotional content, uh, you know, in the middle of the poker pot then I just don't think it's that interesting. So I, I really wanted whatever was happening in the largesse of the outsider story to still kind of boil down to this young woman caught at the center of it. Yeah. It was just, it was just fascinating to watch her just kind of transform into, you know, essentially what, uh, what she held became is just, just a strong independent character. You know, Bruce, Bruce offers her basically just a life of leisure and, you know, in on the farm and she just like no i want to i want to go out and make my own like i don't want a handout and i just it was it's very relatable you know just just take the world by the horns and just make what you can out of it yourself yeah you know i didn't feel like we needed someone to just be another card carrying member of the bat family right Mm -hmm. like it's uh you know you could sort of see that move coming and i didn't think that was the most interesting way you know i i i thought that shiva likes the idea of having people to to train, to mold, to grow, right? Yeah. And um, she wouldn't interrupt Cassandra's progress with Bruce, even if she has certain feelings about it. But she would see Sophia and see real potential there, right? And so um, I just thought that was maybe a more interesting way to end the story and also end, you know, end the story with more potential, right? So like if someone wants to come back and drag her back in, they certainly can. If someone wants to deal with Shiva, they certainly can. You know, again it gets down to my additive philosophy when it comes to creating comic books. Do you have a story for Sophia going forward? Do you have like something in the back of your mind that you're like, this is, if I get another opportunity, this is where I would take this character. Oh yeah. I mean, for sure. Right. I mean, you know, whenever you're writing anything, um, you know, no matter how many tracks go on the album, you always have more tracks. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So it, it just, it's the, the process, you know, every, every decision you make to put something in something usually means five things don't go in. So, yeah, I mean, I have, you know, journals full of notes and things I would do and places I would go with it, you know, and, and you know, we'll see if I return uh, to those characters in that world. It won't be on the heels of what I've done because I'm sure someone in the interim will probably hop on and make their own choices. But, yeah, for sure, you know, you always kind of have uh, other things you would do. When it comes to comics, you have to be malleable. You know, you have to to Bruce Lee the game and be a bit like water. You can't get too protectionist about what you've done. You know, um, you can't resent the fact that you can't do it forever. You can't resent the fact that someone else is going to come in and, and use the characters and, you know, make different choices and maybe undo some of the things you've done, but also add their own awesome to it. You have to love all the aspects of the process. Uh, and then part of the deal is you'll have a bunch of ideas that you probably won't get to implement. Um, and either you can come back to it, maybe in another form of the story, 
uh, and put some of those ideas in there. Or you can take those ideas and put them into a new project with new characters. It just engage the same themes, right? Yeah, I like. I just think it's great that you had like a full eighteen issues to just flesh out this story. You know, I, I feel like a lot of writers don't get the opportunity to tell the the whole story. I, f- I think Tom King said like he was he had issues up to like one hundred for Batman or whatever it was, and he didn't really even get a chance to finish it. So like, I I, just, I think it's great that you were able to tell your whole story from beginning to end. So uh, just yeah, kudos to you for that. Was was super supportive about you know making sure I had the space to tell the story, and you know about. About four issues in, uh, I was still thinking there'd be 12. Uh, and okay, then wow. they gave me an email and said, hey, you know, you can add some more here. And I was like, oh, cool. Then I'll do a couple subplot things that I didn't think I had time to do, you know, and, and didn't think I had the space to do. Um, so, so yeah. And so, and I planned out more, right? Like I, I did, what I didn't want to do was not put ideas in because I didn't think I would have 50 issues or 65 issues or something to do, right. you know, like, so the, the power shift with Duke Thomas, for instance, I still wanted to do it, even though I didn't know if I would have the season two where I would really center that and make that a big issue. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so yeah, you just have to kind of go in and, and it's very jazz writing comics, you know, you, Kind of get you got to go in there and kind of figure out what key they're playing in, what tempo they're playing in, and then you do the best you can while you, while you get to be on stage. So, what is the main difference between writing comics and like outsiders and comparing it to something like Titans? I mean, TV pays a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on the gig. <laughs> there you go. I mean, you know, but then is talk- writing's just writing for the most yeah, part real, for you. Real talk on a Wednesday. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, but I, I mean, comics is in a lot of ways is the most difficult form of writing that I do because it, uh, I have less space, right? Like for me, space is ease. So like a novel, for instance, I, I just finished, um, uh, a science fiction novel that, uh, will probably be, you know, on a shelf for something next year. Um, and that's almost limitless space. Okay. I can write whatever I want to write. You right. know, um, you know, if you if you read like Dune, uh, there's a whole section of Dune. It's like five pages long of a drop of sweat like going down Paul Atreides' face or something, right? Like yeah. Yeah. you know, Herbert could do that because it's a book. You can do whatever you want. Um, and then a screenplay, eh, you have less space, right? A screenplay is generally around 110, 120 pages. Movies are getting a little longer now, so you can see a script that'll be 128, 135, what have you. Um, but that's certainly less space than 350 prose pages, 400 prose pages. And then you get to TV, a little smaller. You know, you got a uh, 48, 50-page script you're working with in television if you're doing hour-long drama, right? Uh, and then in comics... You know, you're talking 20 pages with five pa- five panels per page on average. That's a, yeah. you know, 100 panels. Yep. Right? So you got to do and, – and I kind of break down my arcs into acts. So if I have, you know, five, six issues in, a, in an arc, then I have five or six acts basically, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, act one is book one. The first half of act two is book two. Second half is book three, so on and so forth. So – I have to get an entire act of a story into a hundred panels. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of those pages is probably a splash page. Yeah. So then I lose some panels there, right? So it's, it's the nesting dolls of uh, economy. 
And writing comics has made me so economical in my other writing. Um, I, you know, after, you know, 10 years of writing comics, I can get a lot done in a page of a script, you know, like, and I've noticed that I noticed that about my writing when I would go back to screenwriting, um, while I was working on comics, I would just be more efficient with every script I would do because of all the comics I was writing because like postal, you know, working on that book for, um, you know, two years and, and you know, doing other things and, you know, the mini series like Romulus, I did like a little known thing that I did back in the day. Like those kinds of things just really sharpen your skills. So you just become so much more efficient. It's almost like shadow boxing underwater, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's hard and and you do it. But then when you get out of the water, you, you feel like Superman because you don't have any of that resistance. And so, um, I think that's the biggest difference is just the sheer economy that you have to employ uh, in a comic book um, is is the biggest challenge for me every time. Wow, that's fascinating to me. That's great. Yeah, that is. So with Titans now, um, when you got – how did that come about? Like how did you – that gig come about for you? Oh, um, it was a strange kind of turn of events, right? So like everything in Hollywood, you – you know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy, or you know a lady who knows a lady who knows a guy, right? So I, um, Postal had gotten optioned for television. That I think got on the radar of a showrunner named Mark for Um Mark hired me for Ash versus Evil Dead. I mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, worked on a season of that. And then that got canceled. We knew we were kind of dead in the water halfway through. Uh, mm-hmm. But Mark knew Jeff Johns because um, Mark is big in the comics. And Mark also knew Greg Walker, the showrunner of Titans. So I think like he kind of radioed out to them. And then Jeff was semi-aware of me because I was writing comic books. But he wasn't like super aware of me personally, but I think he had bumped into my work. So he sort of knew who I was. And um, then I met Jeff. It was super Hollywood, man. Like I, I, my first time sitting down with Jeff was a, um, a meeting in like a Beverly Hills hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had like coffee there or something. And I was like, wow, this is Hollywood. Um <laughs> Uh, but Jeff is like a, a kind of a down to earth dude though. Right. So Jeff's okay. not like super Hollywood, you know, he, he showed up in like a ball cap, you know, looking like Jason Bourne trying not to get caught. Was, and, it, was it the tiger's cap? He's known for his tiger's cap. Oh yeah. No, I mean, he yeah. reps, I mean, it's like, I think him and, and Marshall like just rep Detroit, like, like, <laughs> you know, like they just, they, between Jeff Johns and Marshall Mathers, like Detroit is on the map. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah. And then Jeff and I kind of vibed. Um, I mean, you know, you know, he comes from Michigan. I grew up in Missouri. You know, right. I'm into comics. He's Jeff Johns. He is comics, right? Right. right. Yeah. So I think we just kind of vibed in that way, uh, and then from there, I, I, you know, I had some some TV stuff I'd written. Uh, so samples came in, and I sat down and met with Greg Walker, and and Greg is just like a beautiful human being. Like Greg is, um, he reminds me of the teachers I had growing up. Honestly, like mm-hmm. Greg is a really, uh, in a good way, a professorial sort of vibe. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I responded to that because I was always academic. You know, I, I found solace in education growing up. Um, so, 
you know, I just kind of, you know, dug that. And from there, I, you know, they just read the work and thought it'd be a good fit. Uh, and that's how that kind of went down. Um, it's once you get a job in TV, you can keep getting jobs in TV. It's getting that first job. That's the difficult one, but just getting that foot in the door. Yeah. You know, and then obviously, you know, you know like the second job can be a little tricky because, you know, you don't want to be a flash in the pan and, and what have you. But, um, yeah, it was a pretty organic experience, you know, just, you know, just, you know, you said, you know, work gets sent in, people call about you, good things to say, you know, and I was a noob when I was doing Evil Dead. Like I cringe at like my first week on that show. Like I, I'm surprised they didn't fire me. I was terrible. Like, can you go back and watch it or do you like, you watch it and you cringe even more? Like what, what, no, what is I can go back and watch it because it takes yeah. a village to make a show. Right. So okay. um, people way more talented than me were covering up my creative flaws. Uh, but yeah, just like this, you know, being in a room and, and you know how the flow goes and all of that. And, you know, that, all that was new to me. And so I was rickety uh, that first couple of weeks, but um, you know, it's one of those things where you didn't know how whack you were until you think back to it. And you're like, man, I was whack. <laughs> I was well, a sucker MC back then, boy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you went from season one, you were pretty much, I believe, just a writer. Oh, I'm basing this off of IMDb. And then mm-hmm. season two, you get, I, I'm assuming, promoted to executive story editor. Well, so- see, what happened was, so, so um, not to get all Will Smith on it. See, okay, Captain, see what happened was. <laughs> um, as long as you're not calling me Carlton, I think I'm fine. <laughs> so so uh, normally in TV, every year you work in TV, you get kicked up a level, right? TV is super corporate in that way. Okay. Screenwriting is like cowboy land. You know, like you can be a totally unknown screenwriter and then you can have the bright idea to hide in the garbage and then you catch Han Solo when you're the man, right? Like, mm-hmm. so screenwriting can, you can change a life with what one script in screenwriting. In TV writing, you kind of work your way up through, right? And so when I got the Evil Dead job, I was the lowest tier you can be, um, which was a staff writer. Uh, and I, when you're a staff writer, you don't get paid for the, for the script you write. Um, like you get paid a, a, a weekly, but you don't get paid for your script. Now I'm getting into the weeds of how WGA works, but basically when you're a staff writer, you get paid to work on the show, but you don't get the individual script fee. Um, and then, you know, if you work another year in TV, they're supposed to kick you up a level. Uh, but with this one, I guess the way budgeting was working, what have you, um, the deal was, we're not going to kick you up a level to work on Titan season one, but if, if they do a season two and they want to keep you on season two, we'll kick you up two levels. And that's how that happened. Right. So, oh, nice. and then I got into like the normal pace of advancement, I suppose, but I'll just be completely honest with you fellas, you know, growing up in a single parent home in St. Louis, Missouri, um, you know, writing scripts, my first scripts on computers that I rented from rent a center with my temp job, uh, you know, writing in my mother's house, everything they pay you is a fortune. No matter mm-hmm. like what level right. you're at, you're yeah. good. You know, like, so it's, it was hard for me to care about what I wasn't getting. <laughs> you just, know? just keep on keeping on, you know, yeah, just keep like, on working. I give you a Mercedes, do you care if the man next to you has a Ferrari? Nope. No. no as long as right? I got four wheels. <laughs> yeah. You're just driving your Mercedes, man. Like you're yeah. just living your life. Right. So, um, so yeah, so it and it's it's really something you have to really press for, like the way you kind of climb up. Is like you know, the longer you stay in the game, the you know you just kind of rise up, right? 
Uh, and so that's how that went down, though. That initial deal was we'll keep you at the same rate, but if we if we go on and we keep you on, then we'll kind of make it up to you there. That's how that happened. So are there are there things are there elements in season two that you kind of drove forward? Are they like are there specific like Brian Hill ideas that you were like this is kind of where I want to take this like creatively? Oh, were you given that like that? Like you know, again, like when you when you see those you know different names and titles and all that, mm-hmm. your job when you're working on a show is to facilitate the vision of your showrunner. Right, right. Yeah. Like that's you're there to help your showrunner execute the vision. Right. Okay. So, um, and the way Greg runs a room, and, and I've only been in two different rooms. I've only worked with Mark, and I've worked with Greg. You know, mm-hmm. and both of those uh, fellows are the, some of the best people you could possibly work for. So I don't know if other environments are really like, well, you're just this, so you can't talk. Like it might be like that in other shows. Who knows? Um, I know in the shows that I've been on, it's been intensely collaborative. You know, and and. Everyone can share when they have an idea. No one, no one's idea gets ranked. The idea itself, if it's a good idea, that it, it lives, and if it's not a great idea, it gets you know kind of uh, engaged and maybe gets turned into a great idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like oh well, Brian is this level now, so now he's being listened to more. That hasn't really been my experience. I've been listened to kind of the entire time. Okay. I mean, I will say if there's like a like some Brian Hill signatures. Uh, I mean, the episode that I wrote has two people making out to the weekend in season two. <laughs> That's okay. a very Brian Hill moment, I guess, <laughs> you know, okay. I guess right? So, you know, like, little, you get little things like that might show up in there, but that's more of just like, you know, I'm writing the script and I'm just kind of in the flow of it. And they ask me what song I want. And I'm like, party monster, man. On, That's great. Like John Carpenter has like the signature foot shot. You've got the weekend in your scene. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Put the weekend in there. Keep it sexy, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. I know in season one you wrote the together episode, and that's the first episode where the Titans really become a team. I know I got real lucky on that one, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, so, I got I got a real dope episode to write. I was very excited. Yeah, um, and the nuclear family was awesome. Like that was yeah, they were nice. awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah, well that was a that was a, a hoot, man. Because you don't know what episodes you're going to write when you break episodes on the board, right? Episodes get broken. You know, and then they get assigned and then you, you know, you, you figure out which one you're going to get. So I didn't know I was going to get that one. Right. We were just breaking mm-hmm. episodes. But when I did get that one, uh, I was really excited because I love action sequences. Yeah. And I love telling story through action sequences. And I remember telling Brenton that I really wanted the action sequence of the motel to be a story that's told through physical drama. Right. And, yeah. and he, he really vibed to that. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to throw you through a window. <laughs> and he was awesome. like, is it going to throw me? I was like, oh, probably a stunt double, but you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. Dick Grayson's going to get thrown through a window. Um, and so I put it in the script. I didn't think it was going to survive all the way to screen. I mean, you know, it's what you write something and you're like, well, this sells on the page, but they're not going to throw somebody through a window. And I remember getting the set and they were like, Hey Brian, can you come over here? We're going to take a look at this window stunt. And that's when it really hit me. Like they're going to throw somebody through a window. Um, <laughs> that's great. And it, it was like being in the middle of the behind the scenes DVD stuff that I had seen my entire life. Right. But I was in the middle of it now. Right. Like I was, I was looking at the sketches. I was the guy walking past the wall with the previs art. And the scarf 
talking about the different things. I was looking at the props department and making sure that the weapons were right and this was right, you know, and the actors were talking to me. And um, it was it was a really big personal moment for me. I mean, I had written a movie before that I'd gotten shot, Dolph Lundgren movie from way back in the day. But that was like a direct-to-video joint. Dolph directed it and did, you know, did a decent job with it, all things considered. But it mm-hmm. didn't feel the same way as talking to Brenton Thwaites in a Robin outfit in front right, of him. Right, yeah. Right. Like that's, that's a trip, man. Like that is, that's crazy town. Um, so, and the way it worked, I wrote, I co-wrote both of those episodes. Uh, I, I wrote, I wrote together with uh, Gab Stanton, who's like a queen of television, just another beautiful human being, love her to death. Um, and then I wrote Asylum uh, that same season with Greg, the showrunner, Greg Walker. Which is well, another incredible episode, by the way. Oh, thank you. You know, and, and it was it was interesting because my episodes shot back to back. So I was in Toronto for about six weeks. Okay, nice. Normally, you go up for about three, and then you come back. You know, and then that's what it is. But because I co-wrote too, I had to be up there because when Greg wanted the writers of the episodes to be on set when the episodes were getting shot to help produce their episodes, so on. And so um, I wound up being in Toronto for like six weeks straight, and it was it was almost like a um intensive filmmaking grad school program. Like I came out of that six weeks, I think twice, three times as strong as I went into it. Right. Because you're just fully immersed. You know, you're in a different city. It's Toronto. So it's brick cold outside. So you don't really have the energy or desire to waste time. Either you're on set working or you're in your hotel room sleeping or staying warm. Right. So it wasn't, I didn't have many distractions and six weeks of just being intensely involved in production leveled me up. You know, like mm-hmm. I just, I came back with all this filmmaking hair in my chest. I'm sure the the collaboration with the actors, uh, I, as you, we all know that actors give feedback on scripts and changes and stuff. Is that a cool process to go through? Or are you one of those writers? Like I wrote it. That's what I want it to be. How does oh, that go? I, I like actors, man. Um, okay. You know, and so that's one of the most rewarding things for me creatively is hearing actors read the words that I wrote because they always bring something different to it. You know, mm-hmm. like, however you imagine in your mind, that's not exactly how they're going to do it. And I love just kind of hearing them bring something to life. It's just really rewarding. It's one of the most rewarding, I think, aspects of working in film and television is, you know, you get to see human beings interpret your work. Uh, um and so that was a really humbling experience. Uh, you know, and then when an actor, you know, comes up to you and asks you a question, like, you know, talking to Brenton a little bit about, you know, his work. And, um, you know, he was in a picture called The Signal that I liked a lot, a Lawrence Fishburne picture. Mm-hmm. And um, really dug that movie. And, you know, we were talking, I was talking to him about it. And, you know, we're talking a little about Dick. And, and uh, yeah, like those kinds of moments are, are really important to me. Now, I know I will say, like, you do have to put yourself in that professional mindset. Um, you know, like it, you need like a good five seconds to hold it down when Minka Kelly asks you a question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because like part of you is like, yo, that's Minka Kelly. Right. I mean, right. this is real talk, right? Like, you know, yeah. you're, you're a human being, like you're not, you know? And so I remember the first time I talked to Minka and she's a sweetheart. Right? I love Minka. She's great. 
Um, first time I talked to Minka, I was on set. Minka comes up. She's like, hi, you know, hey, are you the writer? You know, hi, I'm Minka. And she starts talking. And I was like, Minka, excuse me, you're going to have to run all that back because that last 30 seconds was just me in my head saying I'm talking to Minka Kelly. I didn't hear a damn word. So can you run that back? And she giggled, right? <laughs> it's, it's like this chick used to date Jeter. <laughs> it was a real talk i was like i didn't hear a word you said because i needed 30 seconds to process i'm talking to Minka kelly and now yeah. i'm good I'm professional but like i just needed a moment i'm sure this isn't the first time that's happened to you um and she was sweet she was like you know what i have so much respect for you actually just saying that because no one ever just says that and i was like yo i'm gonna keep it 100 <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, what, what i want less than then speaking badly to Minka Kelly is lying to Minka Kelly. So it ain't going right. to happen. Yeah. Um, same thing happened with like Ian Glenn in season two. I remember there was a moment when Ian came up to me. and was like, hey, Brian, you know, what do you think about me saying this line this way? And I'm like, whoa, whoa is Ian Glenn asking me my opinion on how he does anything? <laughs> um, you know, my, my instinct is like, however you want to do it, sir. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Ian, Ian Glenn question. So did you guys film this before Game of Thrones ended? Hmm. Because if he did, did he tell you any, like, could he, did he talk about it? Here's here's my secret, Cap. I've never seen an episode of Game of Thrones. Oh, really? That's funny. That makes two of us. I haven't either. Come on, guys. (laughs) I mean, not because I don't dislike it. I just, your boy just never got to it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, when I was growing up, um, I had, so I had two kinds of, of avid reader friends growing up. I had comics and fantasy friends, fantasy novel friends. And my fantasy novel friends were so intense about George Martin, right? It was all about how George Martin was better than Robert Jordan. And if you didn't know that, then you lived on the planet Wackness. And that was like a thing, right? It was, there was the Martin kids and and the Jordan kids. Um, and like the Tolkien kids were kind of like, they were snooty. They were just like, well, when you plebeians get done, we're reading literature over here. <laughs> yeah. like, they didn't really get involved in, in the war of the lessers. But like, <laughs> the it was so intense. So I honestly had kind of a negative, like emotional connection yeah. to Game of Thrones because mm-hmm. it was such a contentious thing uh, when, when I was growing up. And so it never really drove me to it. Um, uh, but I watched like a little bit of one episode and was like, okay, this is solid. But it was it was mainly I like Sean Bean, but we all know what happens to Sean Bean when he's in, when he's in fiction. And then um, Lena Headey, I had a huge like movie crush on Lena Headey because of uh, right. uh, Terminator. Um, and uh, I was like, oh, I'll watch Lena Headey. You know, like you know, take out the trash. Like that was kind of right. what mine was. <laughs> um, and so I yeah, so I watched a little bit. I dipped in. And then I dipped out and was like, okay, well, I'll pick it up. You know, I'll, I'll catch up. And, and then the season went on and terrible things kept happening, right? And then I remember I talked to my wife. I was like, yo, I can't watch this because if something happens to that little girl, <laughs> I'm going to throw a chair through the window and I am not putting myself through that. So I, I said to myself, I need to know that Aria makes it to the end or I'm not messing with this. Because <laughs> I'm not going to do that to myself. I'm like... They look like they might kill that little girl, and I'm. <laughs> well, well, uh, if you get a chance to, and and you want, I don't. I mean, you pro- obviously you probably know what happened. It, it was so talked about. I'm sure. Well, but uh, you know, the Game of Thrones is like it's like the Odyssey, right? Like 
you know what happens in that too, but you can read it and still get something out of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I don't really know what happens because here's the okay. thing. For people who watch Game of Thrones, you'd be like, yo, that's a spoiler. When you don't watch Game of Thrones, it's just gibberish. You don't remember <laughs> anything. I can agree with that. It's like yeah. Lost. I didn't watch any Lost either, right? And I remember like I walked in and then like, you know, and they're like, oh, Brian, don't look. And I looked on screen and like some dude found like a door on the on the ground. And I was like, that means nothing to me. And I will forget that happened. <laughs> Like I, I know that's big for y'all, but yeah. literally no idea what why y'all sitting there with mouths agape because of a door in the ground. Like, so I don't I don't know anything that happened in Game of Thrones. Like straight up, mm-hmm. like I I know there was a wedding that didn't work out for people. That's basically what I know. <laughs> that's funny. There's a lot more than that, uh, but it's if you get a chance and you you know you really want to watch something good, some good TV, you should give it a watch at least until the. Pretty much till the second half of season seven and then season eight. That's where the most of the issues people have. So, yeah, but, I, um, I was mad. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. dude. It, it was just fun lis- listening to people who weren't mad about like DC movies for like two weeks. <laughs> you know, it was like, or Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, this is the break we needed. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, you know, I do remember everyone was a little hot, you know, uh, about it. But, but yeah, no, I'll definitely check it out. Look, Benioff, um, you know, it was like this Benioff and Weiss. Uh, yeah, they're super talented, um, and I definitely want to check it out. It, because I write all the time, I just don't have a plethora of time to watch. Right, yeah. You know, I can't watch a show like that. Like, you know, if you've got 13 episodes, I can maybe, like, check that out. But when you have, you know, multi-season stuff, it just – I got to tap out, man, because I don't have that kind of free time. And then when I, when I do have free time, I like to spend it away from work. Mm-hmm. So I tend not to watch scripted things on. on yeah, I watch that makes documentaries. Sense. I watch a lot of YouTube. Like one of my favorite YouTubes is this British dude who talks about '80s era audio technology. And so I just wow. watch like a British guy deconstruct a tape yeah. deck for forty five minutes, and I'm like, "This is the." You're bomb. just trying to escape. That's really what it is. Yeah. I remember oh, when I was clean the heads with the. He has oh, I got demagnetize the heads and change the belts. This is tight. You know. You're just like this is Ali, and someone someone didn't. He, he's he's just speaking. No one. He's not reading off a script or a cue card. Like it's just it's just off the oh, dome. He's just teaching me why they don't make good cassette decks anymore because the deck in this. <laughs> you know, and it's so literally like most of my free viewing time is spent on YouTube and really obscure subcultures. Yeah, I mean, I think I watch more YouTube than I watch television. Now, to be really honest. Oh, for sure, man. I haven't seen a commercial and I can't tell you how long because I have YouTube premium. So I don't even know yeah. what it looks like. Oh, yeah. dude. I just, I would just wait for the skip ad button. Yeah. <laughs> I just wait for that. But, um, so right, really quick Titan season three, what can you tell us? Um, not much. Okay. Uh, we know it, you started. We know it's in production. We yeah, know that much. We're, we're making it. Um, right. I can tell you that. I believe they have announced that Red Hood is in the season. I can tell yes. you that. And that's I think about, we even got a picture of him. Yeah. You know, I mean, I didn't even know that. But if <laughs> you did, I, you know, I can't comment about that either way. But, um, but yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, I can tell you this. I am very excited about the work that we're doing uh, this season. Um, and... I think in a lot of ways the the show is really coming into its own, um, and we have hopefully some very exciting 
um, kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. uh, coming down. So, yeah, it's 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 definitely a worthwhile season. Um, and so for the fans that uh, are, you know, stuck with us on uh, DC Universe and now we have a bunch of new fans because of HBO Max. Right. You know, I think it's um it's going to be a, a, a really intense experience and something simultaneously different than what you've seen out of comic book television shows, but also different than what you've seen out of season one and two. Yeah. I mean, I really dug season two, just everything with the Wilsons. I was, you know, with, with Slade and Rose, like I thought that was really cool stuff. And eventually seeing Nightwing for the first time on, on the screen was just magical for me. I mean, yeah. I mean we have a, we're going to have a lot more of those, you know, oh, wow. You know, they did that. Moments, yeah. so uh, um, just you know, look forward to it. Yeah, uh, I, as a uh, me and Eric are too. Like we we're big fans of the show. We we really enjoy it, so we definitely appreciate it. Um, just really, uh, we want to talk to you about Power Rangers. You got the new Power Ranger gig. W- what is what is that like? Like, were you fans of the sh- were you, were you a fan of the show growing up? I mean, or did you did you watch the reboot? Did they tell you not, what things not to use in the reboot? Like now you are rebooting it. So I was just just curious, like how how did this all come about? And like. What is your thought process for Power Rangers? Well, I was a fan of Kimberly growing up. No, I'm just playing. Um, <laughs> Who was it? <laughs> Pterodactyl. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, look, we all used to watch it, right? Like, yeah. so. Uh, Especially it, that first season. Yeah, it's just such a kind of a cornerstone of your uh, kind of afternoon television yeah. viewing life, right? Um, but I'll tell you, you know, I can't, obviously I can't tell you any, any real details about it, but. What really interested me in the project was uh, working with Jonathan Edwistle, um, mm-hmm. the director, uh, because, you know, his work and I am not okay with this. Uh, and just his approach, I think, to the world, I thought was uh, really heartfelt. It reminded me of the kind of genre storytelling that I fell in love with as a kid, you know, like that. Um, and not that it's as... Um, I don't want to say like saccharine, but kind of as rounded off as Amblin Entertainment was in the eighties. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but it's just the heart of it though. You know, like the, there was so much heart in what Jonathan wanted to do. Uh, I really responded to, to that uh, and wanted to, you know, kind of bring my mind into that part of the process. And um, you know, he's just a a really wonderful guy and an impressive uh, storyteller. So I'm, very excited um, about working with him closely on this. And, you know, I like working with directors, you know, I'm, I, I mess around with, with filmmaking, um, you know, when I can, I have a little indie feature I'm planning on shooting uh, 2021 when the virus clears up, but um, I do like working with filmmakers. Uh, it's really exciting for me because I, I, I think I speak the language of cinema. I think I understand kind of where they're coming from, what they want to realize on screen. Um, and, it's great to be able to write a script knowing who's directing the script uh, because you don't often get that in the process. Is there a particular ranger that you're really looking forward to getting your hands on just writing and just fleshing out some characterization, some dialogue? Oh, you know, not, not one over any other, right? Because, Mm. you know, at this point, all of them present unique opportunities, you know? Uh, So it's, it's hard for me to kind of pick one out of a lot um, uh, at this point. What I'm what I'm most excited about is 
realizing that world in the grammar of modern cinema, and I realized there was a movie not too long ago. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I, and I didn't hate it. Uh, it was okay. It was a little dark, you know, it was, it, it, it was, it was okay. I, the biggest problem for me with that movie, honestly, what really took me out of that movie was the Megazord was just horribly designed. It would just look like a really bad version of like a iRobot. You know, it just, it did not look like a Megazord to me and just seeing, and the, the Zords in general were just n- did not designed properly. And the, while the suits were cool and the kids were cool, like, it's all about like that giant mech, you know, like that's what, you know, no one says they love Pacific Rim for anything other than the monsters fighting the robots, you know, like you need to ace the robot here. And that was the biggest flaw for that. So that was my issue with the last one, really. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't hate it, but I, I did think that there was kind of room to grow, mm-hmm. um, you know, from it. I mean, I can't hate anything with Naomi Scott in it that much, you know, right. Like, let's just be real. Uh, but I, mean, I love Elizabeth Banks. <laughs> <laughs> she was she's a cool too like she's a cool person yeah uh, i've never met her but i've known people that have worked with her and mm-hmm. they love her like they just say if if you're worried about whether or not she's awesome she's awesome right <laughs> it's basically what they say they say like yo like like elizabeth banks is the real deal she's exactly the experience that you'd want want to have i uh, i fell in love with her in spider-man as betty brant so like you know Mm-hmm. In two in two thousand, that's where it was, and then I've never heard a bad in, thing about her. I've and then you know, Swiver, I, know, yeah. I know a lot of people that have worked with her. I've never heard a bad thing about her. Um, so so yeah, so you know, it's 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 wild. Like, because look, you you know, you get you get these opportunities. You sort of pitch out these stories, and I don't really think about it in the moment. I just think about like, what well, would be a cool story to tell? And you know, I go in and I kind of you know tell my story, and we see where it goes. But you know, then when when it really crystallizes in you and you get the gig, you start to realize like, Oh, wow, this is kind of a big deal. You know, this is, this is a thing. So um really looking forward to, to digging into that. I mean, it's, it, uh, I feel like in general, 2020 kind of wrapping up going into 2021, you know, it's like a page turning kind of, kind of time for the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, mm-hmm. And uh, I got a couple other things that are really cool that I haven't been able to talk about because they haven't been announced yet in the in the screenwriting sphere. Um, but they should get okay. announced soon enough. Oh, I look uh, forward to hearing about them. Yeah. Um, and, and so I I just have like a like kind of a lot of things that are that are that are cooking up, and it really feels like 2021 for you know kind of everyone is is a time when we're going to kind of evolve and level up, as it were. Yeah. Is there so. an existing character? Um, I guess in fandom that you have it written that you'd like to write or you'd like to take a stab at? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um I mean, not none that I really pine over. Um, I'll say this. I would very much like to write a James Bond graphic novel. I don't want to write a James Bond film mm-hmm. um because I just want to watch James Bond films. You know, I don't want to be involved in it at all. Yeah. Right. Like it's, yeah. I've, I'm, I've heard Daniel is a wonderful person, so I'm sure he's a nice guy. But I've had other situations where I've gotten close to things that I loved and found out that people were kind of awful. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh man, that makes it hard to watch my DVDs. Right. Okay. So right. Yeah. There, are, there are certain things that I would probably never want to work on in the filmic world. You know, I can tell you, I would never work on a Star Wars feature. Like they could pay me a gajillion dollars or want to pay me a gajillion dollars. And I would always tell them no, because I don't want to have a bad experience with star Wars. Okay. 
And I have a 0% chance of that happening if I never work on it. Not that I think anyone is bad. I mean, I've heard good things and that's all good, right? But, you know, you don't want to hear that like, oh, this actor who you really like who's playing this character and you're really jazzed about it and then you find out they're terrible. Or you find mm-hmm. out like the producer is terrible or, you know, any of that stuff like the palace intrigue. I have so few things I can just be a fan about. So something like Star Wars wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Um, but uh, he says, and then like two weeks later, you'll find out I'm writing a Star Wars movie. Because <laughs> but um, uh, with Bond, uh, I don't think I have much to say in the film world, honestly. You know, like, I think they're doing a fine job. Like, I don't think there's anything that Brian Hill can bring to that that they can't already find with the with the crew they have. But in the graphic novel space... I want to do like a period Bond story that takes place in the late 80s. That'd be great. Um, that's just a self-contained mm-hmm. story um, that, uh, you know, it's like kind of Brett Easton Ellis meets James Bond in a, in a real intense sort of way. Maybe even kind of using Dalton as like an archetype or something mm-hmm. like, you know, very specific. Right. So that would be something I'd like to do. And I, and I even talked to Dynamite a little bit about doing something like that. It's yeah. been kind of more a matter of scheduling than, than, you know, anything else. I've been reading the Dynamite Bond books. I've, I've been digging them. I, I, you know, from, from the first volume that they started, I think it was like in 2015. I, I liked it. It's like, I read a lot. I mean, Eric can attest this. I read a lot of comics. So if you can get me, if you can get me a comic book outside of capes and tights and it's good, like I'm all for it, you know, like the Bond books, um, that Texas Blood right now is a really great comic um, crossovers one issue in, and it's really fantastic. So something that's kind of like the palate cleanser that's just not something out of the superhero genre, kind of, uh, mm-hmm. or just fresh and new. Like I can really get into it, which is a bummer because like I missed out on Walking Dead when that first happened, and like you know now those like issues are worth you know a mint, and it's like God damn it, Peter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like um, uh, it's you know I, I don't think a, a lot about. Oh, I really want to do this character or that character. Um, but you know, a couple of times you just, you just feel like, oh, you know what? I have something there that I think is interesting. And then in comics, like you see it in Outsiders, where it's as sexy as I'm allowed to make it. And I say that not that DC was like, don't do this, because I never really tried, because I know where I can kind of play, right? Right. But in something like Bond, I can push that a little more. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the way violence works, I can push that a little more, right? Like it's so the working on American carnage, uh, really like got me excited about doing novels on paper in a way. Um, and so that's how I would, I would approach something like that is, you know, it's a good opportunity to do, you know, almost like a European style graphic novel. Okay. I'd be down for that. I'd, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah, no, um, Eric. What else do you got? There's just that weird, awkward silence. <laughs> All right, so, so I want to put you to the test now, really quickly. Oh, so, okay, here we go. So go. you said you wouldn't do Star Wars, but Dave Filoni calls you and says, "Hey, would you want to write an uh, episode of The Mandalorian?" No. What do you say? No. Okay. Nope. Really? That's like the hard. That's the hottest thing in Star. Everyone loves The Mandalorian. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> loves The Mandalorian. I love, I love The Mandalorian. Yeah. Look, you love it so much you want to touch it. Donuts and you decide you want to make yourself a donut. 
right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? Like, I no. can't tell you how many times I go to restaurants and I'm like, I can make this better. You know? Yeah, like, no. <laughs> I, want, I just want it to be hot, you know? Right, like, yeah. I want to listen okay. to the Drake album. I don't want to produce it. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. That is well, that's fair. Thing. And I picked Mandalorian, obviously, because it's the hottest Star Wars thing right now. So I wanted to see how true you were to your word. And that's that's well, I'll just be real. Like, you know, yeah. you're not going to get me in Star Wars unless you unless you're throwing a Jedi at me. Yeah. Like, you're not <laughs> going to get me on Bounty Hunter. You know, like, I just, it's cool. I like it. But no. Nah. All right. So you have a story. You just you're just not ready for it yet. So you're telling us like you've got you got a little bit of something back there. I look, I mean, if 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 Dave Filoni called me up and they were like, how do you feel about Luke Skywalker? Then I'm like, all right, keep talking. Right. You know, if if they called me up and, and said, you know, how do you feel about Anakin? Keep talking. Okay. Right. Um, you know, like so when it comes to Star Wars, like for me, it's not so much about just working on and the IP here and there, it's about what are the things that you, you wanted to happen that haven't happened yet that you think you could realize in an interesting way. So like we never got to see Luke and Anakin have a conversation. It's true. I mean, you know, return of the Jedi briefly, but I was, I was, I'll just be honest. I was really disappointed that in the new trilogy, we didn't get a Mark Hamill, Hayden Christensen scene. You're not alone. A lot of people feel that way. Like, it's like, it, it, to me, that's like, well, what are you doing? Right? Like, right. that's, I want to know what their relationship is like, right? And if if Kylo is, you know, Anakin's grandson, then he would feel responsible for all of this. And if, if, we're, if your grandson is worshiping the effigy of your mistake and plundering the universe, why would you just be silent mm-hmm. when, when you clearly can appear in form because that's been established. So I, I, I missed some of that stuff. Like what, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't like throw out all the new trilogy. I, I, you know, I, I liked a lot of it. Um, right. But I felt like in all of the nostalgia that they were mining, there were just some things they just didn't do for odd reasons. You know, we never got Lando and Han. Right. Right. Like he kind of wanted that. He didn't get that. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, we didn't really get Luke and Han. (laughs) Right. Yeah. The fact that we didn't get the three of them together. Yeah. Like, no Luke and Han. Yep. None of the three. Yep. Word. You know, so like if I went, if I worked in Star Wars, it would be to kind of clean up some of some of that stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it, it would be to kind of build emotional content. I mean, I know they want to move on to like the new thing with the new toy and they got the skiff and the whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, um, I just think for just emotional completism, because um, even if you're like 12 years old and you start looking at the old Star Wars movies, you're still going to want the same things I want because you're going to get involved in it and you're going to be like, yo, this new stuff is cool. But like, why isn't Luke talking to Anakin? Um, it's true. So, so that's the kind of thing that would get me interested, right? Like, you know, like doing that kind of thing. I'm honestly just not that interested in the world of Star Wars outside of the Jedi. Like, I don't, I, you know, it's fine, but it just starts to feel more like science fiction and less yeah. like Star Wars. Yeah. Okay. The, I hear what you're that, saying. Yeah, I do. 
it's it's one of the parts of the Star Wars fandom too that is that's you're not the only one who says that. There's people who like Jedi, who like you know the 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 clones, and who like certain. They have like it's tribal within the Star Wars. The the, the what yeah, I think, like. I think you know, and I think all of the stuff is quality. It's just you know, I never read novels that weren't about Jedi, right? I didn't read like the Han Solo standalone novels and all of that. I read like the novels that were about Jedi. Um, right. So, cause I, I like the force philosophy and, and the, the, the spiritual warrior aspects of all of it. Like that's the stuff that gets me, um, really excited. So, you know, if they came at me with something like that, then I think I, you know, consider it, but it's, it's a very specific kind of, kind of thing. So you're saying there's a chance. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I don't think Dave will call me up and be like, yo, you want to write a Luke Skywalker show? I don't, don't think that's going to happen, but, um, yeah, I might consider that. Well, hopefully he's listening. And he's heard your call. Come on, Dave, give me that call, baby. I got stories for you. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I just, again, Brian, thank you for joining us. Uh, we appreciate you coming on the show. It's uh, it's always fantastic talking to you and picking your brain. Uh, I love talking comics. And you made Eric's day by talking Star Wars. I can tell you that much. He's the Star Wars <laughs> guru around here. Oh, man. I mean, look, I grew up on it, right? Like, we all yep. it, it, it's it, it matters a lot. Uh, to me, you know, and the, and the, that's the weird thing about when you work in Hollywood is you start to bump into mm-hmm. the architects of the stuff that really matter to you, you know, and um, it, you know, it, it seems like kind of a cool guy thing to say, but no, it, it's really you just kind of protect your joy, right? Yeah. Because you you don't you don't have that many of those things. Like so many things get demystified, mm-hmm. right? That uh, to be able to go into Target and just get that little inner feeling of pure joy because there's new toys out, you know, yeah. like I, mean, that, I still walk down the toy aisle. I'm not going right? to like, you don't, you don't want that to turn into, Oh, I remember the marketing department and, you know, Jerry over in products didn't put the right Cape on. The, I don't want to know, <laughs> you know, I just want to, to just get like this, that childhood joy out of it. Um, you know, the way that I used to, because so many, so many things, uh, just get tarnished by experience. Yeah, no, I mean, I, firsthand, I mean, I, I've, I've worked in television, I've worked in sports and it's just, you know, you spend a lot of hours at a TV network watching baseball games. You don't want to go home and watch the Yankees. You, you just, don't want to go home you, and watch the Yankees, right? You want to, you want to escape. You want to, you want something different. And, uh, I, I, I get what you're saying. I, you're right, 100%. Show, the last thing you want to do is fire up Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> so, you're speaking my language pal yes. <laughs> but again just it's fantastic having you on i love talking to creative people and just getting just knee deep in the process and just finding how your brain ticks and just giving you guys the especially guys who write comics you guys don't get enough credit you know it's, oh, it's just a it's a medium it's just a medium that i you know i hope i never I hope it never goes away uh, I, I love holding books i love i love bagging and boarding it's it's wonderful. Yeah, it's it'll be here for for a long time. It might change forms or something, but it'll certainly be here. Um, well, yeah, no, it's always a pleasure uh, coming on. And then you know, when something I write comes out, then you know I'll pop back on and we can talk about it. I, I would love to. As soon as the Hollywood Reporter writes it, I'm, I'm shooting you a DM. Yeah. <laughs> Hit me up. Hit me up. Is there anything? Is there anything else you'd like to plug before we we let you go here? Um, no. I mean, look. You can always follow me on Twitter uh, at Brian Edward Hill. That's Brian with the Y. Why? Because we like you. Uh, <laughs> I'm also known as Illuminati on Twitter. You can also find me that way. Um, 
And as far as plugging, no, I'm not going to plug any work, but I am going to say wash your hands, wear your mask, social distance, and we can get through this thing. Amen. You know? Amen. Yes. Like, yes, sir. It, it can be better than it is. If we all just do a little bit and inconvenience ourselves a little bit, we can we can have a much better landscape than we're looking at right now. Yes, sir. I agree. Uh, yeah. Um, Eric, you want to plug or you want me to plug? You want to end it or you want me to do it? You want to flip the uh, coin? You usually do uh, it. Yeah, so you could do this one. So if you guys want to reach out to me, as you know, you can find me on Twitter at finally33. It's finale 33 Same as on Instagram. If you want to catch up with us on Facebook, we have the Straight Outta Gotham show page and the Straight Outta Gotham group. If you want to join the group, just find find us and then make a request and we will let you in. Uh, the Twitter handle right now is on lockdown. Uh, there, it's a little bit of an issue going on, but we're trying to work through it. But at that handle is at straight underscore O underscore G. Yeah, you guys can follow me on Instagram, Vero, which is Zach Snyder's favorite, and Twitter at Pete Illustrated. Uh, don't forget, like Eric said, check out our Facebook page, our Facebook group at Straight Out of Gotham. Uh, the Instagram page is straight underscore O underscore G. Let's interact there and uh, to keep an eye on our YouTube channel as well. Uh, I am Peter Vera, and we would just like to thank Brian Edward Hill again for coming on the show and my uh, wonderful co-host, the champion of Long Island, Eric Holzman. This is Straight Outta Gotham, and we'll see you next time. Booyah.